Welcome to 6-1. Sharon Cummins has been spending her first day with her family in Dublin since returning home last night after a three-month kidnap ordeal in Darfur. Her colleague, Hilda Kawuki, returned home to Uganda today and said she was thrilled to be reunited with her son. Uh, we were on mountains the whole time, so we were constantly outside. Um, we had blankets and a canvas, no tent. Uh, we had a... Policy was I'm not I don't mind how long I stay in there, but I'm going to get out alive, and even if it means getting out very ill or whatever it is, I'm going to get out. So we kept each other um, really, really, really strong. But um, we got through it, and um, what doesn't break you makes you stronger. So. Sharon Cummins and Hilda Kuuki were reluctantly thrown into the spotlight in 2009, having been taken hostage by rebels in Darfur. Two remarkable women, neither were going to allow the three months in captivity to define them, choosing to come away with a close friendship instead of bitterness or trauma. Here in Ireland, we have all come to know of Sharon's bravery and courage, but what of her colleague? I travelled to Uganda to meet nutrition specialist Hilda, who is back living in Kampala, working for a different aid agency, and effecting change in a very real way in her native country. This is a week in her working life. Very old, but it does it does the job. <laughs> it's Monday evening, and after a long day in the office preparing for a busy week ahead, Hilda's giving her colleague and myself a lift back into Central Kampala. Oh, it's so old. It's done its years. It's great. It's great in the rain and, and the puddles and the and it's just a very very hard body. So I like it in the sense that I've been hit by a bus before, but. Look at um. Are you feeling? I know. Look, look. I don't drive a limo, <laughs> Simon. <laughs> Where are you going? We're going to Bugolobi area. Bugolobi. I'm. A, I walk up the back there, so it's not really my. Oh, okay. So I'll give it. Whoever needs a lift, yes. What? That presentation. They said just do a few slides. Oh, what? Needs oil. Anyway. Oh, we'll manage. Before <laughs> I'm living in Kampala. I've got a family home, I think about five minutes maybe from the city centre. And that's where I commute from to come to work. Bye. Yes, bye. See you tomorrow. The concern office is located in a suburb, Monyonyo, which is on the shores of Lake Victoria. And without traffic, it takes about a half an hour to the city centre. I'm going to go back on Monday. I'm travelling with you on Monday. Kampala is a city that was designed, I'd say, in the 60s for a lot less traffic than at present. And we're looking at a daytime population of close to two and a half million people. And with that, you get a lot of cars, various forms of transport. You've got the little motorcycles that transport people called the Boda Bodas. We've got the matatus or the sort of the little minivans. We have buses. We have, it's chaotic. <laughs> Kampala is noisy, it's chaotic, it's busy. It doesn't reflect the true beauty of Uganda. Sadly, people you know, who only arrive to the city centre don't get to see the beauty of Uganda, so they only see sort of a dusty, noisy city. But during the public holidays when it's quiet, it's not as, it's not as chaotic and, and you get to sort of travel around a lot easier. It's a very busy street. Not bad now. I, I think, like I say, it's, it's, I've seen it where it's been worse, where you sit, you turn off your engine and you sit and have a break, you know? <laughs> 
And I'm in the vehicle that doesn't have the radio, so you do not want to be in this vehicle when it's hot and busy and the traffic's not moving. Oh, and everyone's going crazy. Are people aggressive drivers or? Aggressive. Uh, people do what they want, you know, there comes a point no one follows the, the, um, the regulations. There's a woman that's coming the other direction the other morning and she says, and she's very known, well known in this area. I forget, I forget what her name is, but anyway, so she's very well known in this area. But she says to me, would you drive like a man and not a woman? <laughs> I felt insulted. I thought, do you know how many years I've been driving? <laughs> and what it was, was there's a police car behind me and it wanted to get through. It was very impatient because with them, they don't wait. So I, um, I just sort of thought, gosh, I can't reverse. And if I go in the other lane, I'm not turning left. So I said, I'm not moving. She's like, well, you drive like a man and not a woman. <laughs> so I turn and then everyone in the taxis across was shocked because I told them, no, I'm not going anywhere because if I go in the other lane, then I'll, I won't be able to, um, I won't be able to, you know, go in the direction I want to go and it'll cause me more problems. So she let me go anyway. As Hilda says, the bustling streets of Kampala are just one face of Uganda, but undoubtedly the most widely known, because for many years the rest of the country was sort of off limits to visitors. Which is true, and I think the reason why they haven't had a chance to see, the, to see or discover Uganda is because we went through almost 20 years of war and there was a lot of insecurity at the time. So it wasn't some, a place you know, that would attract much tourism. Um, but in recent years there's been a big difference and people are now going up to see the mountain gorillas in the western part of Uganda. You know, they're trekking, they're, uh, you know, discovering the bird life, you know. And, and there's generally a lot to see. The lake is so beautiful and the islands in the lake as well. Those who have never been, I've, I've had the opportunity to see all this and it's really, really, truly beautiful. So every now and again, if I get a chance, I ask friends to come over, spend some time here, you know, and, and, and discover the beauty of Uganda. And, and I think also with the security now, which has really, really improved, I think people are quite comfortable coming here. Speaking about the security, just driving out here mm. today, there were a lot of police. That's a regular thing, isn't it? Um, it's been like this sort of in recent, um, I'd say in, the, in recent months, I think, because just after elections, you know, people were voicing their opinions on, you know, how they felt. So they sort of, they jacked up the, the security during that period. And they're still trying to maintain it because we have a lot of um, conferences that take place and a lot of delegates that come in. So they're trying to sort of maintain the... The, the peace and security within the, the city area. I suppose, as you say, in recent times, mm. it's been quite complicated, but going back to when you were younger, it mm. would have been a lot worse. It would have been a lot worse, though. The thing is, I haven't... I, I left Uganda. We left Uganda, well, when I was about three years old. My father got into the humanitarian and aid business, shall we say, aid industry, shall we say. And um, that was just before Idi Amin's times in 19, early 1972. It was even before we knew there'd be different regime and so forth. So we... We managed to escape the very, very difficult times, but I mean, I've got family and, and friends who were here during the very, very, very difficult times, and it was impossible to go to school without um, gunshots and that sort of thing, you know. So the security then was very, 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 I mean, that was, I mean, the, the whole place was in turmoil, to be honest. And so I can't really give you a true, you know, indication, you know, personal in picture of what took place at the time. However, if you speak to people now and they compare, you know, then and now, you know, the, over 30 years later, there's been a big, big, big difference in the situation in Uganda. Traffic rules or whatever it is. Despite those long years, according to Hilda, Ugandans are more interested in moving forward rather than looking back. They, they, but they, they, oh, they just love, this is the thing about Ugandans, they love life. 
Everyone will tell you that, you know. Any excuse to go out and have a good time, go to And they'll tell you, you know, we went through so many years or you couldn't even celebrate New Year's Eve, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't go out and have a good time, you couldn't go out to a nightclub because, you know, there were curfews. So for them, they're like, you know, they may come across a bit shy in the beginning, but they, they usually very, very welcoming. And I think most of my friends who are not from Uganda will say, you know, one of the things we found when we came here is that you know, the hospitality is very, um, it's something which they take home with them and think, you know, it's incredible. Listening to Hilda, she refers to Ugandans in the third person, which isn't surprising given her international upbringing. My father's first posting was in uh, Swaziland in southern Africa. Um, very, very small country. Lived there for a few years. Moved around to different countries in southern Africa, then moved to East Africa. I went to Ethiopia for a while. So, Ethiopia, a lot of my early schooling was in Ethiopia. And um, interesting enough, several years later, not several, but you know, some years later, I went back to, to work there. And um, amazing what you remember as well. So, it was very good memories. Um, so it was West Africa as well, and then five years in Switzerland. But during that time we were in university. My sisters and I were in university, and before that we were in boarding school in, in Kenya. So we travelled a lot, and I think the reason for being put in boarding school was because my parents moved a lot all the time, you know, moved around all the time, so they didn't want us to miss out on different education, different education system and so forth. So we stuck to the, um, the British system that's used in East Africa, and then went to to the UK for a couple of years and then um, I did my university, my, sister, my old sister and I did our university in, in Canada in the eastern province. Even though Hilda's father was steeped in humanitarianism, it still comes as a surprise to her that she's ended up in this field. <laughs> it was, shall we say, I wasn't even conscious of it to be honest. He started off in the early 70s and he was with the UN for 20 years. So he's since passed but um, before he did, you know, he knew I was going to get into it and he was just saying, you know, things have changed so much since his times, you know. Um, but I just remember early memories of him uh, working in the refugee, you know, going to refugee camps in different countries and so forth. And then before he retired, obviously he was holding a senior position then and he was just, you know, doing the odd, you know, checks in different places. And um, little did I know I was going to go into it because I started off in a to totally different field at the time. So I, I didn't actually realize that I'd get into this towards the end. And now I see what he was talking about. So he tells a story. I look back at the stories he used to tell us about his time working in, in the refugee um, camps and that sort of thing. So there's been a, quite a few changes since then. And I mean, the whole approach to humanitarian work has changed a lot as well. Hilda spends, on average, two weeks of every month in the field in northern Uganda. But when she's not there, she's here with her mum, her son, Amano, and her two dogs. Hi. You can come say hello. Hello. You know what it is? He's, he's, he's wondering, what's this? Amano. You say hi. Say hi. hi. How was school? Fine. Fine. What did you do today? PE. New book? Library? Library. Mm. Have a new book? Can I have a look at your new book? I've got a lot to play now. <laughs> you know, I think the difference now that I'm working in Uganda, I mean, if I'm gone, it's not for too long, and I know I'll come back home quickly, you know, so he's, he's, he's had to grow up very fast, and he knows that mum's going away, you know, and um, she'll be back, not, you know, 
got good support at home as well, you know. And his father also comes back and forth. He's also in the, in, in the aid industries, but it's very, very difficult. So you've got a family that juggles sort of home and work life and work life. Unfortunately, the, the, the work situation is being out in the field and being very technical people. That's the, the nature of the work. But um, he's, he's getting used to it. He's, he's grown up a lot and he's, he's realized that, you know, mom has to go out and work and her work is in Karamoja and all his classmates know it as well. So that whenever I come back after a while, they're like, oh, you come back from Karamoja. <laughs> so they know, every, my, they know my travel, but I'm, I'm not the only mother out there. A lot of other um, women who travel a lot and children also understand that, you know, that's the way of life nowadays. Um, it's not, work is not always based in the city centre. So he's getting used to it anyway. Hilda lives in a standalone bungalow on a quiet road overlooking the city centre. In her kitchen, beside the fridge, is a black and red velvet map of Africa. That's a very, very old Kitengi map. The very, very old ones that, that came out. Oh, God, I can't even remember how old this is. It's centuries old. But you can see there's no... That was an Ethiopian, Eritrea were one country. Um, Congo, DRC was Zaire then. Um, so there's a few other countries you'll notice that just weren't... I'm trying to say, oh, there was Zimbabwe, so that was then after Zimbabwe was independent. But yeah, so this is kind of old, and we just decided to keep it. You know, we, it was tucked away somewhere, and we thought, oh, why not? Let's just have it up. You know, it's got the flags as well, and it's good for the little boy to, you know, for my son to, to, learn. to learn some of these. Yeah. And how many of those countries have you worked in? <laughs> good question. Let's see. One, two. Worked, worked. Lived is a different story, but worked. <laughs> Let's see, three, four, five. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ah, yeah, by ten countries, my goodness. Wow. Eastern, Central, Southern, West Africa. North Africa, no, I don't even know it very well. Sudan there probably qualifies, it was a bit of North, but that was working, but not really lived, yeah. Incredible, so you're more African than Ugandan? I would say, I would say. <laughs> yeah, I know, it's actually quite interesting when you look at it that way, yeah. Actually, a lot more than that. I had forgot Mauritius, Madagascar. <gasps> yeah. But gosh, if you think about what's happened in all these countries, what happened two, three decades ago, and what's happened now, and you know the situation now, completely different, completely and utterly different. But at least I have fond memories of you know the good times and things like that. Yeah. Beside the map, there's a framed black and white photo. That's my grandmother, who's going to be 92 in July, and that was when my son was a baby. Big generation, a <laughs> big gap, you know. 92. She was, she wasn't, she was okay. Then now that way, she was about eight. She was. 89 then. In, in Uganda, that would be well over there. Well over, but you know what she said? She, for her, it's, it's, it's just having a life that's been out of the city. And, you know, she's, she's still very, very strong. And she's got no dementia or anything, no old age diseases, you know, whatever you, you'd like to say. You know, she's still got the dementia. She hasn't got diabetes or high blood pressure, any of those sort of things. Very, very strong woman, still goes out in her, her garden, so to speak. And, you know, plants sweet potatoes and those kind of things, you know. She's not out in the fields like she used to, but, you know, she's still very, very, very tall and upright and straight back. You can't believe it. So, I mean, she's not, she hasn't had an easy life at all, by no means, but, you know, she's just a very strong woman and fantastic sense of humor. And I think that's kept her going. So we say we hope to take after her. It's now Tuesday and Hilda's doing the last few bits in the office, getting ready for going to the field tomorrow. Hilda, are you sorted for tomorrow? 
yes, I think we're quite organized. The main reason for this trip to Karamoja is for Hilda to give a presentation on Thursday morning to the new local officials who have been recently elected about Concerns work in the area and essentially looking for a mandate for Concern to work there. Just check in with Dan, that yourself and Lisbeth just do a security update and briefing before heading off. This is the side of aid work that we often don't see the backgrounded men work, the conversations, the chats that pave the way for the more practical day-to-day work. And uh, give my, my regards to Dr Philip. I shall do so, <laughs> I shall do so. He's looking forward to seeing tell, you. Tell him I'm looking forward to getting up to him soon. All right, yeah. I shall do that. Okay, and I think everything else, everything else is fine. And when we get to Cotillo as well, we'll double-check security as well and just look at our yeah. plan of travel and what's been happening the arid Karamoja region in western Uganda is home to nine ethnic groups that comprise the estimated 1.1 million Karamojang. The region has a very harsh terrain and infrequent rainfall, and this has resulted over the centuries in an agro-pastoral lifestyle. However, that brings with it a long history of armed violence associated with cattle raiding and climate change and food insecurity. And so for NGOs working in the area, staff safety is very important. There's a lot of clearance when we get there, but we will pay the the courtesy visit when we get in, um, the district officials and all the new incoming local councillors. We'll sort of take it from there. So it's, it's, it's very difficult to predict. I always say this is the context where, you know, it's all very well, you know, you plan ahead, everything is organised, but when you get there, situation may change at the last minute. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Before heading off to Karamoja, we need to get a security briefing from Dan, the transport officer. I think right now it's the most uh, volatile place in, U- in, in Uganda. But uh, the security is not bad in the sense they don't attack NGOs directly. All the attacks come, they're most what we call incidental. Yeah, the NGOs that uh, are attacked are mostly attacked because of traveling at times that are not recommended by the UN, that kind of thing. So as long as you keep to the recommended times of travel, as long as you keep to the security advisories given by the UN, you should be safe and you shouldn't have anything to worry about. So basically, as you travel, the lead person for security will be Hilda. She'll be in charge of managing the security, making sure that the drivers follow the protocols. We've trained all our drivers in the protocols that they should follow. Basically, we, we, we use acceptance as our strategy for security up in the field. Explain that to me. Okay, acceptance. Uh, we have acceptance, deterrence, and protection. Now, deterrence involves uh, using something active, something against the, the threat that you're facing. Say, for example, we have the warriors that are, are the threat. If we get a, a police escort with guns, it's a deterrence because if they attack us, we have something that can attack back. But that's not what we believe in. Again, there's protection. Protection is basically having flap jackets, a bulletproof car. We don't believe in that. We believe if we go there and we don't, uh, we are impartial. We go in to help the people and out. We don't have any political inclinations or anything. These people should accept us. And that acceptance is what we, as long as we maintain our visibility, they know, okay, this is an NGO. They have not come with any agenda. They just come to help us. Yeah, we should be safe. And that's what we, we are calling acceptance. So basically the threat that you will have in Karamoja is on the road of anything that happens. It mostly happens with travel between point A and point B. So the threats are the warriors um, attacking a vehicle 
But the good thing is that these things happen early in the morning and late at night. So if you keep to the hours of travel, you shouldn't have a problem. So it's recommended by the UN and also by us that you travel not before 8 and not after 5 p.m. But we put it at 4.30 p.m. By 4.30 p.m. you should be back in Cotido, ready to, to finish up. So Has there ever been an incident? With concern? No, no, we've not had an incident in the past. And Hilda, when you've been up there, have you ever seen anything or heard guns? No, I haven't, no. We haven't at all. But we've got very good networks in the community. So we tend to know what's happening most of the time. Like he says, you know, some of these things may be unpredictable, but there's nothing really that has sort of been a threat to us at all. And, you know, we're very vigilant with these sort of things. Dan, I saw in the papers there recently, in the last couple of days, that there was... um, quite a few arms taken and destroyed in Karamoja. Okay. Yeah, there's currently a disarmament exercise going on in Karamoja, uh, which is good uh, in the sense that Karamoja was a place that you'd find people walking with guns right in the open. But because of this disarmament process, the army has really intensified their presence there. People don't, don't walk with the guns now in the open and the attacks have reduced. The area, Hilda, that we're going to tomorrow, there's a couple of areas around Kotido. What areas are the most dangerous there in the map? I'm just looking at Moroto, Kabam. Um, well, you know, we look at also like routes. The Abim Kotido Road yeah. is notorious for attacks, ambushes. Mm. We're not using those. Don't take any chances. <laughs> well, generally very, very nice people. Very, very nice. Yeah. Um, you'll see them. And, and uh, when you understand the situation they've gone through and you know, the, the general context of the, of the area, you know, you get to understand the people a lot better. But I don't think you should worry. I don't think you should worry. Yeah. So I think that's it. I'll give you the key contact numbers that you can call. Yeah, in case of anything. Yeah, but in case of any security issues, Hilda should be there to help. Yeah. Like one of the ones we're taking. <laughs> I think. That's one of these little ones. Kajansi Airstrip, 6.30, Wednesday morning. I've been on this one. No, 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 no. We once boarded this one. I was with. What happened was the battery went flat. On this one? No, in Cortido. When Cortido came to pick us up, and we couldn't get on that one. So they waited for. Uh, they, they called the, the, the airport here to transport the battery. So in the meantime, they sent us this little one. And um, I hope that's Eric. They sent this little one, and I came, it was just myself and, and a pregnant woman. Wow. The pilot. The pregnant woman was sick the whole... I think oh. they used all the air sick bags. But it was the bumpiest flight. I said, never again. If I ever have to get out, I'd rather go by road. That is terrible. When we they call it a four-seater. It's actually a two-seater. We're travelling in a nine-seater mission plane, which is used uh-huh. primarily by aid workers to get up and down from Karamoja. <laughs> and the route varies depending on who needs to stop where. The routing today is uh, first Moroto, then Kotido, and then I'm continuing. It's about an hour and 20 minutes to get to Moroto. Any questions? Arrival time in Kotido? Kotido. So 10 15. Excellent, thank you. Just want to quickly call them before. Yeah, that's fine. Hi Eric, how are you? We're going to arrive at about 10.15 in Cotito. Alright. 
let me pray before we go. Thank you. Today, thank you, Lord, really? for my passengers. Lord, mm -hmm. ask for your protection and your what blessing as we are flying up to Karamoja. Lord, be with my passengers as they are staying. Okay. And Lord, ask for your protection upon the ministries. Thanks. As we make our way down the red earth runway, we ascend into the air and fly over Lake Victoria and then make our first stop at Moroto. Then on the journey from Moroto to Cotido, Hilda points out Magnatas, which are home places for the Karamajang, essentially like Cronogues in Ireland, circular enclosures made out of straw. As we descend and hit the runway, I can see through the windows two dozen or so Karamajang children in traditional dress with blankets, beads, sticks, all there awaiting the arrival of the plane. <laughs> and at the end of any good plane, anywhere in the world, is an Irishman. Hi Frank, how are you? He's everywhere. I said I meet him every single trip to Karamoja. Oh, the, the, I meet the Irish him. get everywhere. You see. I've been oh. up here for the last. Come all weeks. the way Come. to Cotida, you meet an Irishman. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the way. Always Raymond, how are you? Eric. Having bumped into Irishman and retired teacher Frank, now working with UNICEF, we then meet Eric Mundo, Concerns Capacity Building Officer, who works very closely with Hilda in the Abim and Cotido districts. Everybody in the field has been so busy. Eric has just finished. Um, bye, bye, bye. bye, bye. Eric has just finished um, doing some training for the Imam program, the Integrated Management of Acute Malnutrition. So he's been with the national trainer and the district staff. We started. This is our, what, our second round here in Kotidu. We started in January, and um, so it's ongoing until we've trained all the health staff, the clinical staff in um, this new protocol that the, the government has endorsed. The jeep waiting for us has a big white concern flag on the front of it. The wind kills our flags. Yeah, tell me about the flag. <laughs> well, what it is here, we it's, it's for recognition and, uh, you know, and probably for our security as well. You know, it's good for the, the community knows that usually these NGO vehicles... They're white. They always have a flag. And, um, and remember he was talking about acceptance and that kind of thing and being known in the community and that sort of thing. So this is actually our form of, of, of um, being recognized as an NGO that, is, that has come to do work and is impartial to any politics. or It's, it's really just a, a visibility thing for the organization and being recognized as an NGO really. The journey from the airstrip to Cotido is about 8 to 10 minutes. We got there, we dropped off the bags at the house that we're staying in, and Hilda got straight into work. Now we want to go to the chief administrative officer for this district to do a courtesy call, let them know we're here, as is the norm, but I don't know if they're in. No, we can just cross-check them. So let's walk across anyway. Yeah. 
Such courtesy calls always take a little longer than anticipated, but Hilda makes it quick and gets straight out to the first clinic, Canawat. So this is the outpatient uh, department where the, we run the OTC, or the Outpatient Therapeutic Care Program from. Little baby being weighed. Yes, this little baby being weighed. It's taking all the, the health stats from here, and the clinical assessment is being done. When we think of malnourished babies and children, we think of emergency situations like the current crisis in Somalia and Kenya. But here in Karamoja, acute malnutrition is a daily fact of life. And the government is responding by trying to implement the new EMAM program, which diagnoses malnutrition among children during routine health checks. And instead of directly implementing the program, Concern's job is to train the local healthcare staff. This is a very popular place. I mean, you, you must remember they do pay a small fee to come and get a service. Um, and even despite having, you know, uh, problems getting the money, they do they do make an effort to come here because they know they'll get the drugs. This place never runs out of drugs like other health centres. So they know they'll get the, the, the drugs. They know they'll get the service. It's usually fully well equipped and they have the most of the resources. So you've got staff on duty. Um, you'll see the difference between the others. Like this one has got two people in the dispensary, has got one, two, three people for the outpatient service. Whereas the others you'll see, you'll probably find one person doing everything, doing the dispensing, immunization, um, some of the laboratory work as well, depending on how, how bad the situation is. So this is a very, very popular choice for most of the people in this catchment area. And how um, much? How much would it be? I'm not sure whether the fees have changed. Most places it's about 2,000 for adults and about 1,000 or 1,500 for the children. I know it has gone up um, in a lot of the PNFP hospitals or health centres rather. And 2,000 um, would be maybe 50 cents euro? 2,000 shillings is just under one US dollar at the moment, or the, the current exchange rate. Still, one US dollar is a lot for a lot of these people because they don't even earn that kind of money a day. So this is the sad reality of things. You find sometimes they will sell livestock or, uh, you know, firewood, alcohol, anything to make money, you know. So... So just want to show you how it comes in. Because this is an integrated uh, service, it's yeah, no longer we separate, we separate. It is now, they all queue up like everybody else, like how you'd come in for routine treatment of malaria or anything, the same, the same way they would come in as well for malnutrition. Would there have been a stigma with being in the malnutrition? There would have been. There would have been a long time ago. Uh, it was well associated with HIV AIDS and... and, and um, you know, the mother would be embarrassed to be seen sitting separately and her child being given you know, different treatment. But now where it's um, part of the routine service, it's working very well. And also the numbers have come down. You know, where you'd see maybe 350 children sitting under a tree waiting with their mothers waiting for a service. There isn't that waiting period anymore. So children will come in. In and out. So first come, first serve basis. Oh, here we go. Yeah. This is a sample. This is the this is the that you have here. They're ready to use food, and they're ready they're ready to use the food we have here is the plumpenat. And what does it taste like? Tell you the truth, I haven't tasted it. But anyone who's eaten it says it's a thick. It's almost quite dis difficult to dissolve on your tongue, but it will melt in your mouth. And it's um, but it's like I said, it's just like any peanut, it's like a peanut butter of sort. 
Have you I've never before? tried it myself. Ah, I've never tested maybe. I don't know how it tastes like, uh, but for us, our work is to assess the kids and then we prescribe for them the treatment. You should see the way they swallow it. It goes, it squeezes and it goes in the mouth. And really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you find a little, little tiny baby and eating this and they're doing a really good job of it, so, yeah. Just outside the door of the clinic, Hilda spots Sister Roma, a Kamboni missionary sister who's in charge of the clinic here in Kanawat. Roma, I was looking for you. Martin, I was nice to see you. I went warmly. Thank you. Thank you. Good. We've been uh, really working very hard. I must say that the wonderful results. I'm so happy. I was telling her, I've got to share all these things with you. Re really? Yes, I'm that very happy. That is great. And, and um, yeah. we went to OPD. Yes. And uh, as I was telling her, the, the, Imagine the, I the, the gentleman, yeah. uh, Moses, who, has been, who was one of the first ones trained Wonderful. and going through all yes. this, the, yes. what he does. And I was very, I said to him, I'm very impressed because I said, we came yes. here to yes. a new district that hadn't had any of these services. And exactly. we started from scratch. We were like, okay, exactly. who will you give us for training? Who's going to <laughs> In fact, Jennifer I'm informed so me that there would be a training. There was a training. Yes. Was a tra did you send anybody? Uh, yes, we did. I'm very, Because very uh, really, we want to improve our and services. And really, and you really and have. I'm so happy. Because I was telling her, you know, everywhere yes. it was, yes. documentation was poor, exactly. wrongly diagnosed. Yes. And remember yes. the first training we did in yes. January, we came here. Yes. And we were like, oh my goodness, what's in happening? Yes. What Hilda's been heartened by what she's seen in the clinics and the day-to-day -day improvement in the implementation of the programme. Her next job is to brief the newly elected officials about Concern's role in the Karamoja region. I don't know, Eric, how do you want to do it? <laughs> we haven't, I don't mind starting, you know, just talk about the, you know, concerns, mission statement, what we're doing, why we're doing it, you know, where we, where we work, just a little bit of a background and then um, background information and then Eric will probably take over. Is that all right, Eric? <laughs> I think it's best because he, he, he works so closely with them, you know. I mean, I oversee what's happening, so I can't say. Councillors have been called for half eight for a nine o'clock start, but by a quarter to ten, there's still no sign of about two thirds of them. Yeah, if you tell somebody nine, <laughs> they wouldn't show up. <laughs> yes, they'd be late. We are supposed to have uh, around two meetings. That's correct. We'll be the to present. We won't be too long, it's just a quick briefing. The meeting eventually gets started at 10.45, almost two hours after the scheduled start time. Hilda and Eric have been busy filling their time, making phone calls to Kampala, Kanoat, Rangen, all the various clinics. And after the formal introductions, Hilda uh, is in full swing. Uh, project in, in 2009, when that expired, we decided to do what they call a sweep survey. It's a semi um, qualitative. It, it basically was an evaluation of the program and see where the problems are, where are the gaps in terms of the meeting lasted almost two and a half hours, and Hilda and her colleagues got lots of questions. We are already aware that uh, we are already punctual in this week, so we need to know that we are punctual. Okay, so that was after a late start. It is after midday, it's going towards one o'clock. Um, yeah, so that was fairly successful. We presented our... Um, organizations, objectives, profile in general and what we're doing, what we're going to be doing in the district. So they seem to be quite pleased. They asked a lot of questions and they are now signing the memorandum of understanding that we have with the district. And 
don't know how much time we have left, but I, I think everyone's pleased that it, at least it, it went quite well. I think it's okay. I think our, also our um, Deputy Chief Administrative Officer helped a lot as well with answering some of the questions. The day is moving on, and so we head to the next health centre just outside Cotido, where we're met with one very sick little child. Definitely has a temperature. It's going to give us an average in a minute. Stabilizing 38.3 degrees Celsius. Oh, it's going to be very, very yeah. How long has the child been feeling like this? Oh, this child is very, very hot. Do you know that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The temperature is 38.6. 38.6, that's the final temperature. Oh. So she says she has come here. Very high temperature. That the fever has just started this morning. She went waiting around this some ill year. Okay. Then the fever started after the fever, the diarrhea and vomiting also came in. Then she had to take her. But this child was with her when she was in the fields, in yeah, the garden? Yes, she was with her in the field. They use a combination of three things to determine whether a child is malnourished or not. Their height, their weight, and they measure the circumference of their arm using a small coloured piece of paper. That's right, the left arm. And we, I just want to feel where the... The little bone is here. Just a second. There we go. There we go. So that's where we start our measurement. So six is there. So we're going to do the mid upper arm circumference at this mark here and see what state this baby's in. So if it's in the red or yellow, the red or yellow will admit into the, one of our programs. Let's just have a look. This child is actually in the red, actually. So it's the red mark. The child is at 11.4 centimetres or 114 yeah, centimetres. Yeah. So this is a child who's going to definitely get admitted in our program. Well, we'll try an appetite test and all and see, and see whether or not it's... But the thing is, the child's got uh, vomiting, diarrhea, vomiting, and vomiting things, since so this morning. Yeah. This, this morning, but how many how, past? How many stools? I would rather one. I did that. I'm not going to say diarrhea. It's just maybe two, one or two loose stools. And since this morning. Yeah. Okay. And the weight again is. The weight is is 5.2 kilos. Yeah. So the high temperature. I've not yet taken the height. So this is a child with a severe acute malnutrition, quite wasted, with complications. So according to the government protocol, gets um, admitted into the inpatient deputed care program. So we'll, put the, we'll admit this child. I think we need to just counsel this mother and explain what's going to happen. I don't want her to start getting worried. And you know how she just said she's from the fields. She may very well go back and discharge herself, you see. Yeah. Oftentimes, mothers are in a very difficult position of choosing between their sick child and staying with their sick child and minding the five or six other children they have at home, along with tending to the fields. Is there somebody who will help her? Which village did you say she's from? Which village? She's from Lokochil, within the town council. Oh, that's not far, which is good. And I don't know if she's got help at home. She has three at home. They're trying to measure the little boy in a height box just to complete the examination. 
Exactly 65. Oops. Mm. Yeah, 65. You're a good baby. Yeah, this lovely. They're screaming and kicking. So this one. Oh, sorry, baby. Okay, now. Yeah, well, this is typical. Now, this is the day where there's just the one. There are times when there are like five or six who come in at a time. And, um, you know, they are swamped. They're just washed off their feet. There's just so many mothers to attend to. And. Um, so this is a, she came at a quiet time and she's been attended to quickly. There are times when there are so many, like I say, and we're all sort of trying to trying to help out. But also it helps with the training. Before they got trained, it would take a lot longer. Sometimes some of these children used to get missed out, only just because of the workload. I mean, they're just overburdened. But um, it's working quite well. One last quick journey to Rangen before the curfew, and the rains have come. Did you see that little boy with the leaf on his head? <laughs> Protecting his in from the heavy showers a big leaf yes and these little ones are coming across some children here wading in the in the the water that's sort of run off the road it's like a little stream so they're standing in there and when we arrived we got a great welcome from betty and some of the patients in the clinic the passion and energy with which Hilda carries out her job continues to amaze me day after day. Whether it be sending emails, talking with politicians or weighing babies, she is a true force. You know, what you have to realise, it's not a glamorous job. I think a lot of people look at it and think, oh, you know, you've got a lot of young people now who are thinking, oh, great, I want to go into it. It's fantastic. There's a lot of going on. And, but it's not, it, it's, it is a difficult job and you really have to be in it and have your heart in it. You do it for the love of helping people and doing that sort of thing because a lot of the results or the impact is a lot slower than you'd imagine. You know, you don't see results overnight. Although Karamoja isn't as volatile as Darfur, given her past experience, does Hilda worry much about security? Like I say, things have changed a lot in the past year, you know. I think you accept that there will be unpredictable insecurity. However, you know, when you start to get so into the... When your heart is into in what you're doing and, and the benefits for us, it's um, the, the benefits far outweigh, you know, your, your worries over, you know, your security in the region and that kind of thing. And, you know, so far things have gone well and I don't want to say, oh, no, you know, nothing could ever happen. But, you know, we are, like I say, very, very vigilant in, in how we, we approach the situation here. Very vigilant and very resilient, Hilda and Sharon have both thrown themselves back into the world of humanitarian work after 107 days in captivity in Darfur. Both remain close friends and colleagues. We've kept a very close contact, but, you know, we were friends even before the whole deal. We 
we were very good work colleagues and um, we've been in touch. We're always in touch. I told her she's like my sister. She will. So I, she's, I contact her the same way I contact my sister. She's very easy to communicate with. So, you know, we talk to each other and having shared so many experiences and, and whether it's professional or personal experiences, you know, she's somebody I'll never forget and she'll always be, you know, um, a part of my life. And um, it's nice also just to be able to confide in somebody when, you know, if you've had a stressful day, you know, I know she'll do the same. And so we, we, we're still in touch. And I think this is a friendship, you know, we'll keep forever, really. Uh, she's, she has not come to Uganda yet. And I've told her she is it's an open invitation. That you don't, I don't need to invite her. You know, she just needs to drop by Uganda. We just say you come by. It doesn't matter whether I'm busy or not, you know. But that's there. And, and I know it's the same for me. I'm welcome anytime in Ireland. So. For further the office introductions, this is all our team here. This is uh, James. James O'Killer, our uh, procurement officer. Daniel, our transport officer. Back in Monyonyo, and Hilda is giving me a tour of the concern office. We've got Simon, our assistant country director of programs. We have Dominic over here, who is our um, IT officer, Emmanuel is our HIV advisor. This is the program support unit that sits in this area here. This is Priska, our gender advisor. This is Chris Charles Oyua, who is our, um, let me get it right, partnership advisor and uh, program M&E advisor. Did I get that Hello. right? We now have uh, Charles here, who is our um, regional IT specialist and advisor. I hope I got the names right here. Hi, Beth. <laughs> She's very shy. That's Beth. Beth, we're in the garden if anyone's looking for us. There's Mary as well. Mary O'Neill is Concern's new country director in Uganda and Hilda's new boss. Well, so far it's been great. It's, it's very new, new days yet, and you're always learning a lot when you come in first. But it was, it was great coming back to Africa. I've been in Asia for the last few years. So flying into Entebbe, and seeing the red earth and the acacia trees, uh, that was good. And what are the biggest issues in Uganda, as you would see them as country director of one of the biggest NGOs worldwide? Um, the main problem that we are looking at is food security and health of the, the extreme poor. So for us, a big issue is around the north of Uganda. Uganda has made a lot of progress in the last few years, but there are parts of the country that are lagging well behind. So uh, a major focus is to work with the communities in those areas and try and address some of the problems and help them building their capacities to ba- basically take advantage of some of the gains that uh, Uganda has. And Hilda Kuki is very involved in nutrition. Um, yeah, I always smile when, I, when everyone says Hilda because she's, uh, she's such a fantastic, bouncy person and it's great having Hilda on the team. Um, Hilda is working on the EMAM program. EMAM stands for the Integrated Management of Acute Malnutrition. And um, the EMAM program is part of Concern's work in nutrition worldwide. So what the program does is it works with both the health authorities and the communities in identifying uh, children that are in difficulties and that are, that are suffering from acute malnutrition and providing a referral service for them uh, to a health facility. So um, Hilda is, is, of course, leading up this initiative in Karamoja. She is working with the health authorities in four districts. It's fantastic seeing someone from the country like Hilda is Ugandan 
and her dedication to working in what is an extremely remote and difficult area of Uganda. But uh, I know in talking to Hilda, she gets a special buzz from bringing around change in her own country. And uh, we, are, we are very privileged and extremely happy that Hilda is leading up this initiative in Karamoja. And that is the thing, because working in your own country, I mean, you're an Irish woman having spent so many years working abroad, but there is a different experience in being an aid worker in your own country, or is there? I think there is, and I think like a great advantage of it for Hilda is that she has worked outside as well. So she has worked in a variety of settings, in a variety of contexts, and then being able to bring that experience back to your own country, complete with the understanding of how your own country works, because things work a certain way maybe on paper, but how the actual relationships work and how they work on the ground are quite different. So um, Hilda has that appreciation. She has the mix of both the outside experience, the international experience, and also uh, the local context and the local knowledge. So she is in a very uh, well-placed position uh, to bring about real change um, in her own country. You look at past experiences and you, you see what worked for you and any time you go through a very, very difficult period, it's, it's normal for you to want to heal quickly and you don't want to have to burden yourself with that emotional baggage. So, you know, you, you don't want a terrible past experience to define you, take over your life. And when you move on, you look at people who have been there for you. You've got great family very positive friends who've been there for you from day one, really. And they, these are the people who make you sort of reassess your life and you look at where you've reached. And, and then you've got, um, well, for me anyway, I've got my son who, who's very young at the moment and he's very impressionable. He's growing up in a, in a, in a different, a difficult environment, it's very different from when we were growing up. Um, so many challenges and you feel you need to be there for for him and and support and guide him and then you look at your profession and what makes you want to stay in it and then um and as you've seen like just in the past couple of days and the people i work with and the people we support who who have greater needs than you do and they can still come out with a smile and they still go on with their lives so these are the sort of things that make you move on and you forget not forget but you, you you don't want to look back at at things that will bring you, which will um, set you back. Where was the stick? Down there or up there? Over there. By that fence. Uh-oh. I really saw it. You really saw it? Yeah. Were the dogs there? Yeah, and it didn't bite me. It didn't bite you? You ran away? I saw it. So, so big. This big, that big, or that big from there to there? It didn't come back this way. But it's the 